Hello and welcome to the new episode of Mustn't Grumble with me, Ian Moore. This is my search, if you like to put it that way, to find the more positive things in life. Um, I've spent 25 years as a stand-up comedian, so a professional cynic, pinpointing the negative, albeit hopefully in a funny way, but it has, I think, taken its toll on my mental health, certainly on on my general outlook. So this is me trying to find the the pound coin at the back of the sofa of life, I think, to enjoy the little victories, just to just to smile a bit more, which is what my kids are constantly asking me to do now that they've nicknamed me Grumpty Dumpty, which I think is a little unfair. But anyway, um, firstly, can I say I'm really overwhelmed by the support I've had for this. It it seems to chime with so many people and. I suppose on the one hand, I'm sorry that so many people are suffering, but all hopefully knowing that you're not alone can can provide a boost, a bit of support, maybe. If you want to get in touch, please do so at mustn'tgrumblepod at gmail.com. I will reply. I will reply to all the messages, um, except to the company who are trying to monetize this thing. Leave me alone, you ghouls. So anyway, like I said, this is episode four. Now, when I sit down to write scripts for these podcasts, I've never have a title in mind. With everything else I write, articles, books, so on, it's absolutely vital that I have a title before I can put the meat on the bones, as it were. It's just just my star. But so far, not with these. The thing is, though, when you have to upload each episode, you have to give it a title then. But this one's different. Uh, I've actually come up with a title before I wrote it, and it's called... A dog's life. Now, tragically, I can't remember why the hell it's called a dog's life. I came up with the idea late last night when I was halfway through a bottle of rosé, wrote it down on my desk notes uh, as if that was it, job done. Um, Incidentally, you may be wondering why on earth I was drinking rosé at my desk after the great laptop debacle, which I talked about in the last episode. I don't know is the answer to that. My old laptop never recovered either we had a we we had a small ceremony for its internment last week it's now buried in the back garden with some of the hens so anyway a dog's life which i've never really understood that phrase anyway it's it's meant to convey in one handy idiom i suppose that life is hard work that you're put upon on the bottom rung well many of us feel like that i often do certainly but I can't look at my dogs for any equality in that. They're about as pampered a pair of animals outside of Mrs. Slocum's pussy. And rightly so. They bring me enormous pleasure. My dog's genuine happiness. Um, my dog, he's called my dog because he's destructive, is called Kipper after the children's television cartoon, which I don't know if you remember that. If you had kids who were around 20 now, you may, you may remember Kipper. It was frankly the best thing Martin Clunes ever did. He's an English setter. Um... The dog, Kipper, not clones. My dog, not the cartoon dog, is an English setter. Uh, and this is uh, this is really unfocused. I apologise for that. But a couple of years ago, when I was in one of my many mental troughs, I always seem to find spring tough and New Year, January, February too, obviously late August. Anyway, Natalie said that she thought that I needed a puppy, a different focus away from, from just writing and gigging. I wasn't convinced at all. I saw it as um, extra responsibility, another tie. The training seemed daunting. The walking looked like it was going to be hard work. The clearing up. um, I just saw it as a burden that I didn't need. 
Natalie listened to that and she understood and completely ignored my concerns and we got a puppy. Now, I've had dogs since I was seven and Kipper is the warmest, friendliest companion I've ever had. I just, I smile just to look at him, but you can't describe his life in terms of a dog's life. He certainly does not have it rough at all. But what he does do, and this is in medical terms, I think, what he does do to me is that he gets my dopamine flowing. Now, I'm not entirely sure what dopamine is, so apologies if I've got this all wrong, but I think it's essentially the pleasure chemical in your brain. When you look forward to something, your dopamine chemical kicks in. It's like your, it's like your brain drooling. Um, a neurological semi is a, is a colourful way of putting it, I guess. Uh, and I now realise that I've had too little of that in my life. The dopamine, that is, not the... Not the oh, anyway when dopamine kicks in your spirit is lifted that's how i understand it anyway so by being a comedian who's always looked for the cynical the dark side the sarcasm and the i guess the funny side of failure i've almost suppressed the dopamine thing in boxing terms i've been playing roper dopamine right for for those of you who aren't aware what roper dope is it's this muhammad ali was fighting George Foreman in a heavyweight contest and Ali's plan was to let Foreman attack him so much that Foreman would tire and if Ali survived the Foreman onslaught he could then pick his opponent off, which he did. And even if boxing isn't your thing, the audacity, the skill and bravery of that was just astonishing. Roper dopamine is a similar thing in that I seem to have spent too much of my time inviting the darkness allowing the detail of life to to get to me to pummel me literally and just just as i'm about to fall through the ropes or throw in the towel or something and something will happen something and it can be non-specific but something will flick the dopamine switch it hasn't always sometimes i've i've been knocked out but you know what as barbara streisand says i'm still here it's about giving yourself a break I suppose. For as long as I remember, I've felt guilt. Guilt about the smallest things. Guilt for other people that I'm somehow responsible for their actions. Guilt that I've done something wrong, but I just don't know it yet. I lose sleep over it all the time. Every media interview I ever do, every program I'm on, for years, even the gigs I did, I'd be consumed with guilt afterwards. Did I say the wrong thing? Have I upset someone? And it gets so bad that it's crippling and it can't be shrugged off. You can't shrug off guilt. I'd feel, ironically, I'd feel guilty if I did. And I don't say that for comedy purposes. That's genuinely how it works. It's kind of circle of guilt, non-guilt, guilt, non-guilt. Last week, Morris, um, my middle son, was crushed because his team, Chelsea, were beaten in the semi-final. Uh, sorry, in the, in the FA Cup final. And I felt guilty for that. I felt guilty because when he was young and he was trying to decide which English team to support, he's French, by the way, and I said, well, you were born on cup final day. Why not Why not choose the winner? And I told him it had been Chelsea, that they'd, uh, they'd beaten Middlesbrough. And I had the year wrong. That was 1997. He was born in 2005. And so he shouldn't be supporting Chelsea. He should be, he should be supporting Arsenal. Not that that would improve his mood in, but you know what I mean. And I felt guilty about... The Chelsea thing. And every time Chelsea lose, I blame myself 
for the effect it has on him. I can't help myself from doing so. And I know where my guilt stems from, from very young. And everybody who suffers the same thing can probably pinpoint its origins. But it's something I need to shake off. I have to, I have, to have more dopamine and less penitence. My psychiatrist told me yesterday that she thinks I have changed in the year that I've been seeing her, that I'm more hopeful. I'm beginning to shrug off a bit of that shroud of guilt that I'm constantly covered in. And she, her exact words were, it's very positive. That's what she said as I was leaving. It's very positive, Ian. And my face must have just dropped because she, she just said, what's up? And, and, I, and I just said to her, I said, I'm not, I don't know how to deal with that. I don't know how to deal with being positive and hopeful and that's that's yeah, she said she said oh well you know we have made another appointment so we'll discuss that next time the truth is i've been trying to reward myself i've been trying to i've been trying to kick start the dopamine and trying to get it flowing I set myself little tasks, and if I complete them, I'll give myself a treat. There you go. I've just realised what the title is all about, A Dog's Life. I, I came up with a rosé-sodden mental health analogy. Bear with me, right? It's like the world needs more mental health analogies. But basically, I'm training myself like you train a puppy. Behavioural repeats equals reward. If a puppy sits, he gets a treat. If I just sit outside and relax for half an hour, I get a treat. If a puppy stops... If a puppy stops shitting indoors, he gets a bone. If I stop dwelling on my mythical guilt for five minutes, shitting in my own head, I get a bone. It, well, I don't get a bone, but, you know, it's a treat anyway. It's a reward. And the anticipation of that, I guess, triggers my dopamine and all is sunny for a while. And what you reward yourself with, it really isn't the issue. My rewards have ranged from... Well, a new laptop last week, actually, firstly. A new laptop, so it can be uh, as expensive as a new laptop. Or another reward of mine was a packet of Worcester sauce crisps. Another one was the Abbey Road 50th anniversary box set. Um, uh, a new pair of summer loafers. Some rewards come with a risk. I think that you, know, you don't always anticipate these things. That the... The other night, the dogs started barking at three in the morning. I think it was last Tuesday. Now, we live in the middle of nowhere, and you can't just roll over and forget about incidents like that. And they were really frantic, and it woke us both up. And the thing was, the security lights hadn't come on either, so that was, makes it just even more worrying. And someone snipped the lights like as, a, as an intruder, thinking that the lights were linked to the alarm system. I don't know. You, the, the things run through your head, and we both lay there hoping that the dogs would just stop and that it was, I don't know, one of the owls in a disused chimney had set them off or one of the cats was at the door. But they carried on. And what was worse was I could hear voices, like slightly muffled voices. People were talking. And your heart beats faster in a situation like that, almost until it becomes a noise itself. But the voices were still there and still talking. And I, I said to Natalie, I said, can you hear that? Can you hear the voices? And she was quiet. She was trying to listen. She went, no, no. I said, you can't hear the voices. No. And I was lying there. And I said, look, it sounds like, it sounds like Stephen Fry. And she turned the light on. And the dog stopped barking by now. And she said, what do you mean it sounds like Stephen Fry? 
And suddenly it dawned on me, ah, um, I'd left my audio book running uh, in my in my sleep headphones. Earlier that day, I'd rewarded myself with a, with a, a treat. I'd spent nearly 80 quid buying the complete Sherlock Holmes, read by Stephen Fry on audiobook. It was his voice I was hearing, not not the burglar. We never did find out why why they were barking. It was uh, the curious incident of the dogs actually barking in the night for Holmes fans. Another reward I bought was a sword umbrella. I've always wanted a sword stick, you know, one of those fancy Victorian walking canes with a dueling sword hidden inside. If you've ever seen Death on the Nile, David Niven kills a cobra in Peter Ustinov's bathroom with his sword stick. Well, anyway, they're illegal. But I found an umbrella version online, which is also illegal. But I figured if anyone could smuggle one in, it would be a Chinese website. Um, Anyway, it never arrived. I don't know why. I also don't really know why I want one. I just do. It it would go with my cape. Yes, I own a cape. A proper 1930s heavy police cape, which I bought a few years ago. And I've worn um, just once. Just, Just the once. I was in London. Uh, gigging maybe three or four years ago and it was a really foggy winter's night perfect perfect cape weather uh, and it would also protect my Edwardian frock coat which was underneath um, but it was proper it, it, it was foggy there was like a swirling drizzle it was dark it was just just perfect cape weather the whole thing should have been in black and white and I walked through London all the way to Camden where I was gigging and never never felt more alive i there was no mockery from anybody i just looked bloody good there you know i can say that occasionally i look i look i look fantastic anyway after the gig the rain was was heavier so i thought i'd take the tube back to the hotel instead um and the platform at camden was was really quiet it was that sort of camden hinterland before the pub shut and i walked the whole length of the platform because that's the thing about capes you have to keep moving to get the full effect of a cape. Anyway, there was a family sitting on one of the benches near the end of the platform, a mum, dad and two little boys. I reckon they were about eight. It may have been twins. I can't, can't really remember. But I walked past, peacocking. I was just basically peacocking, showing off my cape to the world. But as I passed the family, the two boys both started humming at the same time. They were humming the Imperial March from Star Wars, basically calling me Darth Vader, but in a really perfectly comedy-timed way. And I was crushed. Genuinely, I was crushed. I never wore that cape again. Anyway, but that's not going to happen with the sword stick. Okay, Now that we're allowed out again, all the local brocons are going to start, and I know I'll find one, and I'll use it to swap flies or or slice a baguette or something. What I'm saying is this, in, in a very roundabout way, I'm trying to give myself a break. Uh, and I think that's an important message. You, you should always try and give yourself a break. I don't, think, I don't think my random guilt will ever go. I've been this way for over 40 years. I'm not sure you can erase that. I'm not sure I really want it to go anyway. If I have no guilt, there's no empathy, and you're basically on the psychopath spectrum. It's about managing it, and it's and if that means I've turned myself into a kind of Pavlov's dog of Victoriana, there's no there's no real harm in that, you know. For now, things are on the up. I'm feeling I'm feeling okay. But part of me seeking professional help a year ago was to find a way of dealing with the inevit- 
inevitable time when things aren't on the up, when I let all the spinning plates fall and smash. And it will happen. But if it takes a trusty sword stick to get my dopamine fizzing like a shaken Coke can, then, you know, why not? You know, why not? I can stand there and just go, Depression, how about you, sir? Anyway, we'll see if I can get one. I'll let you know if I can get one. Thanks, as always, for listening. These are uh, these are just rambles. I'm no expert in anything other than my own faults. But if they do chime with you, let me know and let others know too. You know, again, you can get in touch on mustn'tgrumblepod at gmail.com. Now, I have to go and inject the goats with lice medicine. So um, that would be fun. I may even wear my cape. Dum, 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 dum.